culture analytics is a very interesting space in itself. Maybe you could even think of a culture as a personality of your organization. You know, you and I could do personality tests on ourselves. And just like people, organizations grow. They have a way of behaving. There is something, let's reference actual examples. When you look at financial companies, like banks and things like that, some are naturally really safe, super cautious. You might consider them slow, you might consider them dull, but they're safe and that's what their culture is. Whereas others are aggressive, they take risks, they break the law and they almost don't seem to care. Mm -hmm. And yes, you could say, step back and say, no one person usually caused any either one of those cultures. But again, what has happened to get a culture of that is people have been hired in a certain way and mm-hmm. other people have replicated that and people have been trained and people have been managed in a certain way. If you only reward the generation of financial gains in trading mm-hmm. and you don't mind, like, you know, it outweighs the risk of getting in trouble with regulators, then obviously people will just take more risks if you let them. Culture analytics in banking is quite fascinating if you ever looked at that in detail because the sum of everybody's small actions result in that overall vibe of the business. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome. My name is Luke Shermer, and if you're new here, I'm the author of the book, Align Remotely, and I help teams thrive and achieve more together when working remotely, and you can find out more at alignremotely.com. So this episode is basically part two of my discussion with people analytics expert, Nigel Diaz, Uh, and in today's episode, you will discover how to think quantitatively about trust in an organization, uh, which is something we cover. Uh, why internal company networks are actually strongly tied to company performance and how you can measure them uh, in a more systematic way uh, at your company, even if you so desire. Uh, And also how to redesign your company culture using people data, uh, which is where my initial curiosity uh, drove me to actually have Nigel on the podcast in the first place. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. You piqued my interest with trust specifically. So gathering data around measuring that, how is that modeled? How, how do you think about that? There are two main ways of collecting that type of data. You've got active ways of collecting it, which is probably more related to surveys, actively asking people. Now, That isn't necessarily, we asked all like 100% of the organization, maybe it's just pulse surveys. And Mm -hmm. there's been massive evolutions. I don't know if it's an evolution to technology, but there's more organizations trying to do bite-sized surveys that pulse ask people things. And I've seen more examples of people trying to 
you know, process language as opposed to just give us a five scale rating. It's more like give us your opinion and then they'll use analytics to analyze the data. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you've got the active way of going out and just asking people certain questions. There's an art form to asking the questions the right way. Yeah. And that's one way of doing it. And then on the other side, you've got the more passive way. Now that mm -hmm. isn't necessarily to say it's metadata, but it's probably something which is tracking more how are people behaving. Mm -hmm. You'd hope some organizations being transparent with their employees to say, yes, we're tracking certain things about your behaviors that maybe normal people don't know can even be tracked. Mm -hmm. And there were some scandal newspapers, articles which came out, people trying to do slightly stranger things to their employees because ultimately the organization felt they couldn't trust people. Mm -hmm. There's ways of tracking behaviors. You can obviously track utilization of certain products and so on. Mm -hmm. And so you can use that data to understand how do people behave and therefore, again, use that as a treasure of how much should we have trusted them, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Most organizations are quite transparent and most don't go down that passive route, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Because they don't know how or they don't want to. Maybe that's a different question. I, I know this in the context of larger scale software development. And we, we were using a tool called uh, Git Prime, which was later acquired, renamed. But essentially, it was looking at how much the team is working, checking code in, doing all kinds of stuff. I was gathering metrics. Even though we had the system, it's still, it really depended on being clear that when we were introducing it and we when we stressed that it was the case and I genuinely believed it was the case that it's just there as a tool for greater transparency and not as a way to express mistrust that people aren't doing anything. It's just to see what's going on in a slightly more metadata at a slightly more metadata or aggregated level, maybe yeah, metadata. It's useful to have that data to measure mm -hmm. track the efficiency of the process, but you don't want to people to feel like you're judging and benchmarking them with it or something sure. specifically with trust. It's difficult because as soon as you start trying to measure it, you possibly disrupt the trust needed to be able to measure it in the first place. Like an ironic angle comes into play. There's a strong argument. It's not specific to HR that data collection is, you know, yeah. the ethics to consider. And there is the transparency of how users of any software, do they really know what's been tracked and also how their data is being used mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in an HR context, people who use employee data for anything and do it well, will be transparent about what they will do and also what they won't do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that this is where interesting, like that relabeling of workforce analytics to HR analytics, to people analytics. Mm -hmm. I think there is an argument and some people would say that there's been an expansion in scope of what people might look for in terms of data as those labels have increased. Maybe it's because new technologies exist and mm -hmm. there's more data to pick from. Maybe it's this awareness of what analytics can do and you're not just analyzing the workforce for HR's sake, you're analyzing it for the sake of the business. I've seen projects where, yes, we're doing traditional things around, can we help people become more engaged? And looking at things to do with performance. Mm -hmm. But then you're like, oh, well, we've got the data for when people arrive at work and leave the office because they scan in and they scan out. Now, obviously, people know that they're scanning in and they're scanning out. But do they know that you're going to join that data to their performance data? There are some systems where you look at what people are typing and who do they talk to. Mm -hmm. 
and there are very positive things that you can find like in people analytics one of the hottest topics in the last 18 months has been network analysis mm-hmm. understanding who talks to who mm-hmm. and you can do really interesting things with that to say a salesperson who knows two product people is 20% more likely to be a high sales performer because that person just has the connections to talk better about the product mm-hmm. and there's other interesting examples do men talk to more women and therefore women get excluded and so on and so obviously if you know these things you can put in place positive hr strategies to say we want to make you better at your job we now know that if you know two product people you'll be better so we're going to include that in your development or well, we know that there is a a conversation that excludes people going on here mm-hmm. let's make sure people know that they're they're doing that just in just in case it helps address that diversity imbalance mm. but the same data that tracks who's talking to each other could be used for less positive things right mm-hmm. and, and and if you don't know that this is being tracked because in fact, every time you send an email it's being tracked but the, it's not being historically analyzed for this network analysis purposes mm-hmm. if people don't know that you're doing this i think that's when the ethics the trust issue between your organization and the employee come onto rockier ground yeah yeah that's clear i've heard about this technology a few years ago now i think actually and they were it was more in the context of who works with whom and how that affects productivity and how for example office space layout affects that who knows whom clearly it also affects things like silo formation so to your point about sales and products do you know if there is a point where a company can be too networked where everybody knows each other too well i haven't seen that you have a lot of organizations nowadays that try and go for flatter structures Mm -hmm. i'll I'll reserve judgment on whether or not that's good or bad i think we'll see over time how does that play out but Mm -hmm. there are lots of ambitions to have flatter structures movement away from vertical career paths to cyclical career paths, which means you get more exposure and you rotate more than you necessarily go up, mm-hmm. um, which has got lots of positives to it. And mm-hmm. it kind of suits the demographics, at least of most Western organizations. I've never seen anyone say we're too well networked. I suppose most well, people tend to over connected, over communicating, something like that. I've never seen it, and, mm-hmm. but I think there's definitely the potential, like that could be a great thing to analyze. Like you said, people might be analyzing to say, are we too siloed? Should we work better? Like, how can we work better together? And we want to, we value collaboration. So let's measure that. If you were the head of analytics or something, you might be the person who's saying, well, actually the hypothesis that we're going to investigate today is, are we too networked? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a potential to say everybody's so well networked. There's a lack of efficiency because everybody's meeting everybody for coffees or something who knows that's the extreme case where people are socializing and not actually working because <laughs> they're yeah. hanging out with each other and obviously if they're hanging out with each other that's harder to track as well like true, true. unless they have a meeting invite for it water cooler conversations will probably all unless you get to the next level of tracking yeah um, yeah there are some companies which get their employees to wear gadgets so they can measure where in the building they are so it's like uh, monitoring where your van drivers are or something, monitoring the people. It's hard to separate one from the other. So speaking of collaboration, what kind of analytics 
are there around this that you've seen? How would that be? How would you think about that in a culture, for example, um, in a company culture? You mean specific, like how would you look at collaboration and understand it better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all analytics in, I'll speak to people analytics, like all analytics in the HR and people analytics space, there are active ways and passive ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So the passive ways tend to be around, for example, when you send an email, there is a metadata trail which says, when did you send it? Who did you send it to? And things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it would be off limits to scrape the email and read it itself. That mm -hmm. will, that's normally people don't go to that level. Mm -hmm. But it means you can at least see where was an email triggered, who did it go to, and you build it up across hundreds of people. Most organizations send billions of emails. You can begin to just track in email communications who communicates to who. In a way that can be useful, but it doesn't necessarily articulate is there a collaborative nature to their relationship? Mm -hmm. So this meta thing, it can point you in the right direction, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily going to unveil the nature of the connection. It could be anything from social to something else, any reason that you've ever emailed people. Mm -hmm. So the other side of this network analysis tends to be active, which is mm -hmm. to say you will work with the people, like maybe it's a survey, something like that, to go and identify and say, who are the top 10 people in your organization who you feel you work the most with? Mm -hmm. And questions like, who gives you the most energy? And so on. You ask a series of questions, and there are people who specifically specialize in this. And I would like to say these people are experts and geniuses in their own right for this kind of, this particular type of analytics. Yeah. But, and, and usually, you, at least in the way that I've seen it done, it's usually a combination of those two approaches. Seeing who's emailing, communicating, who's taking meetings with each other. COVID has arguably made that a little bit easier because obviously everything- Everything's online, yeah. Online, yep, so everything has a digital footprint. But then the active survey bit, that's when you're really gonna find out like, who really is the critical person in this whole network, where if they leave, things won't fall apart. Two teams will no longer talk to each other or no one will know how to connect with the right person. Those central nodes, like if we were looking at one of those diagrams with lines going everywhere between the little dots where every dot is a person, yeah. the one that has the most network connections. Connections in. I, I, I remember reading a book, this is like 30 years ago now, back when I was getting started with everything that in big companies that I think that like the people who are very good at internal networking and know people from all over the company in different offices, different areas, that those people tend to do really well. It's something that I've been thinking about lately because especially like in the 90s, okay, let's say email was introduced when I was first getting a job, but j j just the fact that email was available, that didn't necessarily mean that I could go and email the guy in Switzerland, the guy in Japan. Because mm. First of all, I had to know who, who the person was. And second of all, even if I did, there was all of these like, who are you and why are you contacting me? <laughs> It's not even silos. It's just like this kind of, these kind of natural barriers people have, even when they're in an organization that's together. So that's something that I've found quite fascinating. I guess this is tied to how silos form in a way where people just want to stick with their five or 10 closest people. Potentially. No use of data and technology is going to 
overcome fundamental human behaviors and personality traits, right? If I reference like, you know, you and I met so many years ago now, and here we are doing this podcast today, and it probably speaks to your nature and my nature that we maintain these contacts. And so I, I suppose when you look across an organization, companies are full of different types of people, and some of them will be the types that they're just social and they're just those kind of they're just the people who always know everyone and it's a combination of their personality maybe their tenure maybe their career path has just taken them through the organization at the right rate mm. if we were to try and make this line of conversation into a practical conversation like if you were running a business or something you've got to look and say firstly do we have many of these people just like those critical core fundamental people those key nodes and then you've got to ask yourself well do we want more of them do we have enough? Do we have too few? Mm -hmm. And then if you did want more of them, and this is where the data will be useful because it can partly explain some of those questions I just asked. Now, mm -hmm. you might not have the personality, like most organizations don't personality test everyone. So you might not have the personality bit. Yeah. If it is, they had a certain career path, or if it is, they have a certain tenure. Or again, if we had no data and we were just saying, hey, you and I solving this thing. Well, I would be asking myself, have they had the right, have they been in more parts of the company? Have they been here for 10 years? Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The data can tell us if we're right or wrong. And then let's pretend it will, then we can be like, well, okay, they have for tenure. Can we help them network, put in a specific active policy? We've previously relied on them just naturally getting this network. Let's have a policy that says, we're going to ask these two departments to just socialize more mm -hmm. and hope that slightly improves the chances that more people become like those. But those things like without the data, it's anecdotal, it's gut feel. Mm -hmm. Everybody will have an opinion on it. The data can come along and, you know, add a real fact-based approach to that particular problem. If you're looking at redesigning a culture, there's lots of aspects to culture. And there's obviously these unwritten rules that people have in, in their own heads when they interact with each other. There's also explicit policies. You can play with creating a structure that makes it possible for people to collaborate more and to meet people from Japan or Switzerland or Colombia or whatever as part of their job. So there's less of a, let's say, psychological boundary between people when there's 300,000 people there in one company under one roof, technically. Mm -hmm. um, culture analytics is a very interesting space in itself. Maybe you could even think of a culture as a personality of your organization. You know, you and I could do personality tests on ourselves. And just like people, organizations grow. They have a way of behaving. There is something, let's reference actual examples. When you look at financial companies, like banks and things like that, some are naturally really safe, super cautious. You might consider them slow, you might consider them dull, but they're safe and that's what their culture is. Whereas others are aggressive, they take risks, they break the law and they almost don't seem to care. Mm -hmm. And yes, you could say, step back and say no one person usually caused any either one of those cultures. But again, what has happened to get a culture of that is people have been hired in a certain way and mm -hmm. other people have replicated that and people have been trained and people have been managed in a certain way. If you only reward 
the generation of financial gains in trading mm-hmm. and you don't mind like you know it outweighs the risk of getting in trouble with regulators then obviously people will just take more risks if you let them culture analytics in banking is quite fascinating if you overlooked in that in detail because the sum of everybody's small actions result in that overall vibe of the business mm-hmm. and when people try and change that like changing culture it's incredibly challenging but also interesting because you've got to do certain things to reel in some of those tendencies it's all it's almost like if you were trying to lose weight and you have to get the self control not to eat that extra chocolate bar but mm-hmm. therefore requires you to actually change your shopping process before it even comes to so there's no chocolate bar in front of you when you analyze culture you have to really dig deep to find out well yes this is what the current face of culture looks like this is what traits and values and stuff our people tend to exhibit but where did that come from what drives it how do you tweak them is and and again keeping it ethical and transparent and this is why it's such a fascinating space for for me anyway yeah yeah no i i agree it's it's really interesting if you don't design a culture then it, it evolves based on defaults and it, it is somewhat random and sometimes it evolves well and sometimes it doesn't but therefore it's still worth thinking about it and i'm sure in larger companies people are thinking about it <laughs> 100% but you you can't not have a culture yeah even, even if you haven't taken responsibility for your culture yeah that's your organization because it has a culture yeah yeah exactly so what about the culture implications like on things such as how people are promoted or how how people feel like the well-being while at work can all of this stuff be measured or how how would that be looked at most things if you want to can be measured i think in today's world and it's a bit like the room that you and i first met in when it was all about startups and things like that mm. out there there's always somebody who's got an idea to address every problem that well most problems that are out there and i suppose the the real answer is is it a big enough problem that they get enough profile and enough customers that everybody finds out about them but if you really want to get even onto like super niche topics there's probably someone out there trying to solve the problem mm-hmm. but this is where the different ways of how we just talk about culture play into it at least in how how i would think about it you know is if we say culture is maybe the way that we act and the way we behave and the values that we try and push then to address your first point then so when it comes to promotions and 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 career development and talent management which would be the 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 buzzword to google if you were looking for more information on the hr practices side of things i think it comes down to well what are the values that you want to that you want to promote by and in fact this kind of goes a little bit back to your performance question from earlier Mm-hmm. because yes performance five scale rating but most organizations will have a little bit more texture to that like so especially if they're using these more systems because they'll have like goals and objectives related to some what somebody's going to do in a year mm-hmm. and again i pr- i'm pretty sure that has always existed but now there's systems that capture these things better mm-hmm. if all your goals were just about making money then that's what people are going to focus on and therefore that's presumably what you're going to promote on if all like, if everybody gets five goals and all five goals are make our business money 
Mm -hmm. then that's the culture you're promoting. Whereas if you have a wider selection of ways of judging what goals are set and so on, and how do you cascade goals from the chief executive all the way down so that every goal still contributes to like their top, like the key agenda for the company, mm -hmm. but it translates into your world. Yeah. Partly who you decide to promote is probably going to be related to that performance. And so therefore it's going to be partly, well, your organization, the culture of it may probably reflects your chief executive team. What did they say were the goals? And therefore, how will we deem who's better at performing in the context of those goals? Yeah. There's obviously there's, there are other dynamics in play, obviously, like maybe culture around fairness and so on. And you can invest, like we've referenced so far, in ways in using technology to identify when things are less fair, yeah. be more fair, and, and, and so on. So I suppose that's how I'd ask the first half of your question. Like when it comes to the well-being and so on, again, investing in well-being is probably a statement in itself, like companies that are willing to actually invest in employee well-being, that's a, a decent step to begin with. Mm. And then after that, again, how did they invest? The the analytics will tell you the impact. If you were trying to reduce stress, if you were companies who are currently saying, you know what, online working is intense. Everybody doesn't take meetings on Fridays anymore. Mm. Or everybody gets an extra hundred pounds to spend on their personal e-learning course based on this new technology that you know we've invested in it's a different way of looking at culture right but i suppose it's still working out what does this company value if a company is considering doing hr analytics how would they start thinking about it even assuming they aren't doing it already yeah i think the key thing the very first thing that I would do if I was running a function, you're going to have to get the buy-in, well, more than the buy-in, you're going to have to get the senior leadership of your organization, or at least your HR function, to understand what is analytics and set the direction for, going, going back to that very first thing I said, which are the decisions we want to help, you know, what are the type of things that we want to do better? What are the decisions that we're going to prioritize more? If they can understand like the, the value that analysts can create in the context of its impact on people or the impact on the business, that will give you the best context for everything else that you do. Mm -hmm. Because if you know that, well, then you can decide, do we have tools that collect the right data? Do we have the tools that analyze and transform the data? Do we have the tools that visualize it? Do we have the tools that do the advanced stuff versus the averages and so on. You can make decisions around what is the type of team we need. If you were to, again, I, I would I'd, I'd say if anybody wants to check out the research by the HR analysis think tank, it's free for everyone to read there. You can see that these functions evolve over time. And most organizations start with small bite-sized steps, mm -hmm. laying the foundations. So solving specific problems, basically. COVID has accelerated this. Like COVID was an opportunity for analytics people to, instead of making small bite-sized steps to prove themselves, some functions were literally like thrown into the fire and it was like, 
<laughs> whether you like it or not, we need you to give us some evidence, good or bad. <laughs> like this is your opportunity to shine. You make it up, but you got to give us evidence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like most organizations in that research said, yes, COVID has provided us with an opportunity to show off data-driven HR and people analytics in general. Did all of them achieve what they wanted to achieve? Jury's out. And I think the, co the crisis isn't over yet. We, we have a research topic that we'll look at post-COVID. Let's reflect and see the learnings. And let's see if the, hopefully the profile for data-driven evidence-based management in HR will stay, even after the crisis and the urgency has hopefully let off just for the sake of everybody in life. Mm. But all of them started off by basically the senior people wanted to make those choices. As soon as they knew that, well, it's like, well, we need these tools. I need this team. There is an unspoken factor in a lot of these things. You could do the best analytics and the best tools, but if your decision makers can't use the insight you provide, then what was the point? <laughs> it's not going to have an impact. But so you can say, well, we want line managers to make these choices better, HR directors, and this is what we need to do to help them. Usually it's a bit of a handshake journey. And it, on average, research shows it takes 35, 36 months to get to the advanced analytics. If you look at our global benchmarking set, some organizations do it faster, some take longer. This year, I think, has given a lot of opportunity to go more quickly, which is exciting, I think, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. These reports are available at what URL? hranalyticsthinktank.com. Okay. And just it's an evolving practice. When I think about my career and, and how I describe my job, I often don't use the words data or analytics, ironically. Mm. Like for me personally, I feel like it's my job to help organizations make better HR decisions. Mm -hmm. in, in my perfect world, anytime somebody makes a choice about either how the workforce impacts the business, but also anytime somebody makes a choice about someone's career, assuming people want to do good things, we should be helping people make better choices. Anyone who has ever had a bad recruitment experience, had a bad learning experience, had a bad promotion, pay, all these things now... Obviously, these won't be eliminated. And some people will always be annoyed for whatever reason. And not everything is perfect. But if we can help all HR people from like the top of the organization to line managers make just slightly better choices, I personally think like it will just result in people having better jobs and organizations doing better. And that's the exciting thing. Yeah. yeah. How do people get in touch with you to ask more? <laughs> there's a think tank website also three and strategy that's the business which owns it also three and strategy.com on twitter my handle is nigel d27 uh, so if you want to tweet at all uh, anything like that i'm fairly responsive growing family and everything like that aside so i i'll respond if i can um and on linkedin i suppose nigel dias find me there great Thank you very much. Yeah, definitely a great discussion. I think Nigel's approach of uh, shifting company culture uh, was the interesting takeaway here. Uh, I mean, he clearly thinks that thinking about your objectives, particularly non-financial ones, uh, 
can help you change performance evaluations. And then that way you can kind of drive uh, all of the other cultural change. Um, and yeah, if you come from a mindset where you can pretty much measure nearly everything related to people somehow, um, then that makes it a lot easier. And um, also, you know, making sure that your values as a company are reflected in the objectives uh, is is important because it, it does end up affecting the culture. If they're all financial, then it just kind of does become a, a difficult thing to work with, basically. Uh, it creates a difficult culture, difficult environment. And um, that's not to say that not having financial objectives is a good idea, but uh, I think getting the right balance there is probably a good place to start. Tune in next week where we continue on uh, with someone who uses martial arts to get at the soft side of leadership. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show.